Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. This month, Teresa brings us a couple main segments. First off, she speaks to Mike Giasandi from Stanford University about the online Teaching LGBTQ Plus Health course that he helped spearhead, which is now live. We'll include a link to the course in our show notes. Then Teresa speaks to some of our local Hamilton Health Sciences ER docs, Dash, Sim, and Raj, about their work with the South Asian COVID Task Force. To finish off, we have our Residence Corner segment, where Ben interviews Jaina about some tips on how to get involved in research as a resident. Enjoy! Hello, everyone. I have a special guest from Stanford University. He's one of my colleagues from actually academic life in emergency medicine, and he helps with some of the brainstorming back end, helping advise things. And he's been a mentor to me for a number of years, but definitely someone who I look up to in terms of his ability to see kind of the big picture of things. So, Mike, will you say hi? This is Mike Jasandi. He is from Stanford. Dr. Chan is just the most gracious, lovely person in the Northern Hemisphere, right? Can it, wait, or North America. Northern Hemisphere is more than just our two countries. But let's just say the whole Northern Hemisphere. You're very kind. I'm a no role model for you. You are the queen bee of medical education. But I'm thrilled to be with you tonight. And I'm really honored that you invited me for a little chat. Yeah, well, I'm excited to hear about your latest project. So for a frame of reference, he's an emerge doc by night, just like the rest of us. And by day, vice chair of education within the Department of Emergency Medicine at Stanford. And Mike's been doing some really cool activities, not to mention definitely winning grants and doing cool educational research and public but he's also got this one passion project that I thought that we'd bring him on the show to talk about. Because first of all, it's going to be free to everyone for three years, which is fantastic. And second of all, I think for a lot of our residents and junior faculty who are really interested in curriculum development, your story is going to be really knocking out of the park and just really inspirational. So walk me back to the origins of your project. Yeah. So the project's called Teaching LGBTQ Plus Health, a Faculty Development Course for Health Professions Educators, which I'm going to refer to from now on as the course. So two years ago, I started to help our LGBTQ Plus Meds Student Affinity Group at the School of Medicine. I'm one of their faculty advisors. And, you know, I was chatting with one of the leaders of the student group, and we wanted to do a project together. Um, and I I have to say, since being back to Stanford, one of my favorite things is, is working with medical students on projects. I got I got a lot of them going on. My, my students sort of know, know I have probably too many things going on with them all. But this was one that I was really excited about because there was a grant opportunity from our Academy of Educators. So at Stanford, it's called the Stanford Teaching and Mentoring Academy, and they offer an innovations grant. And one of the priority areas for the innovations grant is a, is a DEI grant, so diversity, equity, inclusion, in priority Canada, funding area. EDI, just, just for frame of reference, equity, diversity, and inclusion, because we like to be different from the U.S., but oh. same letters, just different right, words. Same letters. Canada, you do everything better. I'm going to say it like 20 times on this podcast. But so we placed a grant to create a faculty development course. So 
Our theory was that LGBTQ plus health is insufficiently taught in medical schools and nursing schools in the United States, at least. And we hypothesize that's the case, not, not because our faculty members don't want to teach the material. It's because perhaps they just don't feel like they have the content expertise to do so. And I think it's very fair to say that most clinician educators in practice right now were never taught basic principles of LGBTQ plus health beyond sort of antiquated board style questions where the single gay male patient on the entire test presents with PCP pneumonia. Like that's the only test question any of us ever got in the last 20 years. And and that somehow represented diversity and inclusion on our board's tests, uh, which was really just ridiculous. But, you know, I think my colleagues are really lovely, compassionate, intelligent individuals who want to care for LGBTQ plus patients better. They certainly want to teach their students how to do this. And they just, they just don't know how. So our theory was let's create a, a faculty development course that's easily accessible, that's engageable. Is that a word? Let's say this. So let's Let's create a faculty development course that's easily accessible, engaging, and something that would would help faculty members feel more confident, give them some skills and abilities, but mostly increase their confidence so that they felt like they could incorporate LGBTQ plus health into their daily teaching. So that was our grant. And luckily we got funded and, you know, just to pull the curtain back, this was, we're we're almost at two years now. So it took quite a while for us to build what I, I hope is a course that you'll all check out, but I'm really, really proud of. We've partnered with Stanford Educational Technology. So our instructional designers at Stanford, which I'm happy to talk about. They are leaders in the field and really wonderful collaborators and have produced what I keep calling a snazzy. It's a snazzy course, everybody. It's it's very fancy. And you know, I'm really proud that that the students that I work with, one from Stanford and one from Tulane. So Timothy Keys from Stanford and Shana Zucker from Tulane University, both leaders in the Medical Student Pride Alliance, which is an international affinity group for LGBTQ medical students around the world. They they are the authors with me. So it's it's myself and two medical students creating a faculty development course, something I'm also really, really proud of. Wow, that's really interesting and very, very, I think, revealing to say these projects, you know, they, they do take time. They take time. They take passion. Speak to me a little bit about how you got through the rougher patches where you're like, I'm never going to get this done because I'm sure that happened to at least once. Well, it, it happened to me a couple times. And, you know, so I'll say one of the things that sort of pushes you through with your passion projects is that, right, they're your passions. And I think there were two, well, really three. There are three reasons that this particular project is so meaningful to me. One, it, you know, obviously I believe in the content and I really, I want as many people to access the course and teach their students in a different way and take care of LGBTQ plus patients in a different way because they've taken care of the course, because they've taken the course. Separately, I really wanted to work with these two students. They're brilliant, and I just wanted to partner with them. And when I partner with students, I really try to never ever let the project go unfinished. Like it, you know, we're gonna we're gonna see it through to completion no matter what, because I think that was something very meaningful to me that my mentors did, and I I want to pay that forward. But selfishly, I had never built an online interactive CME course. You know, I've written plenty of papers, I've given plenty of talks, but this was sort of my first attempt at an online CME course, one that, you know, I like to use the word snazzy, that would look snazzy. And that kind of got me through. But I'll speak specifically to one of the biggest challenges, and obviously that's the the virus in the room, right? It's, it's you know, COVID threw us off significantly. You know, we were on a, a production Schedule that was ambitious, but but certainly could have been accomplished in a 12-month grant funding cycle. 
And within a few months, we were off track in deliverables. I was being pulled in 9 million directions last spring. And, and then frankly, EdTech was pulled to begin creating COVID educational materials that the School of Medicine wanted to push out to the world because it was really timely and important and that, that filled an important educational gap. So we were sort of put on the back burner for a few months and placed in a bit of a queue, but that allowed us to kind of catch up on our writing. And, and we really made a very, very rich script, I believe, for the course. And, and sort of overcame a little bit of, of our writing inertia because we had a bit of a, a buffer from COVID. But it pushed our timeline out from, you know, a 12-month production cycle to, you know, we're going to be at almost at 20, 24 months when the course launches in March. Yeah, I think COVID threw a lot of us for the loop. So I believe so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you won't be by yourself in that. And especially, you know, from Canada, we've watched your numbers and we're like, and all that you're even still finding time to do all this because it's been it's been really rough, right? So but now you're vaccinating like crazy and I think it's gonna be turning the tide. Soon you'll be able to shame us in <laughs> I don't know about that. Again, I'm going to come back to Canada is better at everything. But I will say today, I worked the day shift, ER doctor who worked the day shift, guys, and I saw no COVID, like none. That's amazing. So what is today, March 1st, when we're recording this? Mm -hmm. the inflection point, maybe. Yeah, well, hopefully it's going to be a turning of the tides and we can have a little bit of reprieve and hopefully with the vaccination, get this down to being something that's serious, but maybe not as life-threatening as it has been for many people. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about how you usually find inspiration for these kind of projects that you take on. It sounds like for you, a big part of it is being inspired by your junior mentees. Is that is that correct? I, I, absolutely. So this, I mean, I think that a lot of us are are a bit opportunistic when it comes to our academic work, you know, and, and this was not an exception. There was an opportunity for funding. There was a, a funding priority that aligned with our interests and our passions we just had to fit something in that you know that that made sense that was fundable that was important to us where we would see the project through but but yeah you know this this was a project that was largely de- devised by the two students that I, I mentioned Tim and Shana I and mean, they they really are the drivers of much of the content I, I wanted to create a course for faculty you know I, I think at one point we did debate well maybe we should just create a, a general online CME course about LGBTQ health in general and just sort of educate whomever wants to watch the course and I really felt like the educational gap was not necessarily there. There's other resources to teach you about LGBTQ plus health, but I don't know that there's a faculty development course for it, right? So the educational gap is that there's a student demand for better teaching of this content in medical schools across North America. There's numerous surveys that show that medical school curricula either have very little or frankly no LGBTQ plus health content, and that today's medical students and nursing students really want to learn this content, but their faculty members simply were never trained in how to do that, right? So the educational gap being filled is the you know, the mandate to teach this by a group of faculty who just perhaps were never trained to do so. So I felt like there's the gap. There's That's where the, the course should go. My role was not necessarily a content expert in this case, right? I'm an emergency physician teaching about LGBTQ health, largely in, in you know topics that are, are generally covered in primary care clinics or specialty clinics. But I, I came at it as a medical educator, medical education researcher. You know, my passion is faculty development. So that's really the angle that we took it in. So yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the project was driven specifically by my mentees. And, you know, I just, I threw a little nerd on top of it, a little med ed nerd. 
as I said. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that you, what you're telling me is that you really leverage your strengths, uh, the things that you're passionate about, merge them in with kind of a trainee's passions and interests and created a secret sauce to get you through 24 longer months than and getting their project through. So that's really exciting. So if someone wanted to, uh, to check this course out, because I think a lot of our residents who are listening and a lot of our faculty members might be interested. We obviously have a big advocate in our own midst, Dr. Karis Masarella, who does a lot of transgendered work and advocacy in our local milieu. But I don't know that people always have a great understanding of some of the other letters in LGBTQIA+. <laughs> you know, and so being able to understand every term in, in, within that and be comfortable with teaching it might take a little bit of time for people to do some reflection. So if people want to take this course, where can they find it? Yeah. So if you go to Stanford School of Medicine, so Stanford Medicine simply, Educational Technology, so Stanford Medicine EdTech. They have their own website where they host their own courses that they've built, sort of separate, but in partnership with Stanford Continuing Medical Education, Stanford CME. But if you go specifically to Stanford EdTech, the course will be launched mid-March of 2021. And it'll be amongst perhaps a half dozen other recent courses that EdTech has put up. You can sign up for free for faculty members. It does get you CME credit through AMA, Category 1 credits. And I'll tell you, can I tell you a little bit about the course content? Because it, you know, it's funny that you say all of the letters and what they mean. And this is these are the things, honestly, that can frustrate faculty members who are novices to this, to this area. So the course is specifically designed with the intention that you are a novice. This is an introductory course. We come at it assuming you know nothing at all about LGBTQ health. And you know we're here to just sort of give some introductory topics. So those topics include a module on LGBTQ plus vocabulary, where we just sort of throw all the words out, we define them. Sometimes the hardest part of teaching is just not knowing which word is the right word for the right patient at the right time. And our glossary is interactive. You can download definitions, you can link from one word to another. It's really a very powerful plug-in into the program itself. So I, I love that. So LGBTQ plus vocabulary, if, if you feel like you need a refresher, this course will teach that. Then goes to a module on social and behavioral determinants of queer health. And then a general module on teaching strategies. So we recognize this, the audience is clinician educators, right? So so we know our clinician educators know how to teach. Many of the teaching strategies that will be covered in our course, such as item writing or role modeling, are things you do all the time, but we're going to help Put a lens around using those teaching strategies to teach the course content that we offer. Then there's yeah, contextualizing it, right? Yeah, yeah, contextualizing, giving you some tools so that you can include LGBTQ health plus health in your daily teaching. There are three clinical case studies, and they cover a wide array of different LGBTQ plus health content. And then there's a pretest potest to help ensure that you you know you learn something that you can walk away with. There'll be some That's teaching great. aids uploaded on the site that you can download as well, so that. It's a very interactive, but it's also a portable course. So I, I really encourage everybody who's listening to take a look at it. My selfish ask is if you learn one thing from our course, I would really ask you, request of you to share it throughout your department and then to share it to two or three individuals outside of your institution. That This is really going to be a grassroots dissemination effort. And I ask if you learn one thing, please share it with one of your colleagues or peers. 
That's great. And I mean, I think that's really speaks to the core heart of how we learn anything, right? You start with some vocab, you learn how to contextualize it, and then you test yourself on it. I mean, you've knocked out of the park in terms of exactly all the elements you need. Now, it could be any other kind of life that you're trying to learn about. It could be refreshing hepatobiliary, you know, pathology. But I mean, I think it doesn't really matter. And in this way, we probably covered more hepatobiliary pathology than we uh, covered on these topics. So I'm really excited to take your course and just learn about the things that maybe it's been too awkward for me to go and find out and learn and have experts like yourself kind of take me through. And I think that that's going to be really exciting. So Hopefully everyone can check out the actual modules. We will link to it in our show notes so that you can take a look at it and in our infographics. And yeah, thanks so much for having this great conversation with me, Mike. I'm really grateful to Dr. Chen for helping us get the word out about the course. I'm really honored to be on your podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, the podcast listeners are wondering who this Dr. Chen person is right now. I'm sure everyone just calls me T. Chen. So (laughs) all right, well, this is T. Chen signing out. And that's another episode of Mac Emerge Podcast. Hey, hello, everyone. I'm here with some of our own docs from the Hamilton Health Sciences from the Mac Emerge crew. I have Sim, Raj, and Dash. Perhaps uh, you can each say hi. And I know some of our listeners will know who you are, but maybe just kind of introduce uh, yourselves and where you're at. So we'll start with Sim. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Sim Sanenwalia. I'm a graduate of McMaster Emergency um, Medicine Program. I'm in my fifth year of practice right now. And uh, thank you very much for having me here today. Excellent. Okay. And Raj, go ahead. My name is Raj Graywell. I've been on faculty here for 15 years, Mac Merge Doc, and I did the uh, the 2 plus 1 back in 2005. Excellent. And Dash? Hi guys, it's Dash Sazav. I do a uh, trauma and emerge here at the HHS. I was Raj's resident and Sim was mine. Excellent. All right. So I'm uh, I'm really privileged to have these three here because they are the brains behind something that you might have seen on the news, in the media, and just maybe something that we've all been wearing a t-shirt about. This is our shot is a campaign that really came about because of some really amazing activism and social awareness that these three fine doctors have been working on. And, and I wanted to get the background story of it. So Raj, maybe I'll kick it to you. I was very inspired by the article that came out in the newspaper about all of this that you've been doing, but can you take us back to the beginning of when all of this came into being and and, and how this came about? Absolutely. Uh, back in November, around Diwali, that is uh, celebrated in the South Asian culture, we started seeing uh, increasing rates of COVID in, in the Peel region, positivity rates uh, well over 25%. And basically, it kind of it was a conversation that my wife, uh, Dr. Anju Anand, who's also one of the co-founders of the task force, kind of said, Raj, you got to do something. I know, you know, you always wanted to give back and Peel region is being hit hard. And for the three of us, we've kind of, a lot of us have our roots in, in Peel region. I was uh, born and brought up in Peel, went to elementary school uh, up the street where we have the testing center. But it really means a lot to me. And I I think that our community, uh, the South Asian community in particular, was really being hit hard. And I think um, at that point, I kind of uh, picked up the phone after Anju said, look, Raj, you know, you got an opportunity to start something here. And we just started noticing a lot of messaging not getting out to our community in a language they understood. So getting these clear, concise messaging out to our, our community in, in Peel. And so basically kind of picked up the phone up and, and said, Dash, Sim, like, let's do this. Let's try to see what we can do to help our South Asian community in Peel. And that's how the South Asian COVID task force was born. So I'll hand it off to Sim or Dash to maybe uh, kind of continue on from there. So we received the call from Raj. So we were all on sort of like a conference call and we're like, oh my God, because we knew that a lot of people didn't understand the gravity of the situation. 
And it was because a lot of people uh, who are from the Peel region, English is a second language. So we wanted to make it sort of clear to everyone by speaking the language of the people, of the community, about the gravity of the situation, how important it was to take COVID seriously and what, why we need to take the precautions and how we need to make sure that we not only protect ourselves, but protect one another. Within, I would say, like the first sort of 24 hours, we also got on board Dash's brother, Amrit Sadev. We also had help from the Canadian Muslim Task Force, Tyreek and Hashem Khan. And then we set up a website. Amrit and Tarek actually were up all night and um, set up a website for the task force, which was crazy how quickly everything moved. We got Sonia Singh on board. She's a dermatologist in Hamilton. And all of a sudden she was our social media lead. I called over to BC to some of my cousins who are emergency physicians out there and said that, you know what, we need to do something. And it's not just a problem that we're seeing here in Ontario. It's something that's going on in BC as well. So quite uh, quickly within like just, I would say like a day or two, we became sort of a national organization. That's amazing. Dash, I've seen your Instagram coverage of some of this stuff. Can you take me into some of the the, the thinking behind using some of these alternative media to be able to reach people. Can you can you give me a little bit of glimpse as to why we're going into these zones? Our you know our our, our mandate as a South Asian COVID task force really was to get messaging out to people using language and methodology that they would understand. Not our message. It's consistently been public health messaging that has been vetted by our colleagues within public health departments. We just wanted to get it out to people in ways that they're going to hear it. That meant using the means that are going to be available and already in high rates of use by our target demographic. Certainly, you know, we're making extensive use of, of social media modalities like Instagram to reach a certain part of that salvation demographic, Facebook to reach a slightly older demographic, TikTok now to hit a younger demographic. But really, when we when we started this, we were using a WhatsApp channel running off of Raj's phone. Messaging on WhatsApp has its own viral capacity. People like something and they'll share it within their network. Someone within that network will like it and they'll share it within their own network. It spreads really quickly. So in the first weekend, you know, when the messaging that we were trying to get out, which was basically hey, the Wally's coming up, you better stay the hell home using, you know, different interviews and things like that, you know, that we, we would see that we would share it on WhatsApp. And within a day or two, it would spread to the point that it was circling back to us. So that was a pretty effective method for us. Before we had figured out any of the social media business, really, it was our partners within our cultural media networks that were so super, super supportive. So Punjabi or Indian radio, Punjabi or Indian television, print. So these are these are traditional media formats they were doing it through a cultural lens they've been doing it for decades and you know what these guys got it right away they immediately they knew you know listen there's a there's a paucity of uh, of participation within within our community when it comes to acting the right way when it comes to this virus we better get it on board and uh, and help mobilize our community to do what they have to do this is right at a time where we were starting to see less than positive messaging within traditional media with broader reach so for example the star the globe even mainstream television you were starting to see articles or pieces that were like hey something's going on in peel within the south asian community numbers are high 
what is it about these guys that's doing this? A lot you of the blame and game kind of show, right? Yeah, yeah. And, exactly. And what yeah. it was was not understanding the cultural nuances of how to how to address those messages. Raj, I'm going to kick it to you. Yeah. So I just wanted to kind of play off what what uh, Dash said. So this WhatsApp channel that we created was pretty amazing. All my friends disowned me because they said, "Look, Raj, you got it." You know, I, I added them all to the WhatsApp channel, and they're like, "Look, you know, have these people get on Instagram." I'm like, no, 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 that's not how it works. Like our community in Peel, like uh, the uncles and aunties, they all use WhatsApp. We quickly immobilized. We got a full content team on board that we had from a team in BC, the creative cores. You know, we got an uh, infographic team in place, started doing infographics. And yeah, sure. And we can give, I know Dash is giving credit to, to public health, but a lot of the messaging wasn't there. So we we actually did produce our own messaging and, you know, uh, c- combating misinformation on our own. And so we, as a task force, so we had our content team, social media team, this WhatsApp channel that kind of blew up. On that WhatsApp channel, we had the ethic media on there. So they would propagate our message. Each one of them had five to 10,000 people. We had a thousand taxi drivers in the airport that are all like South Asian on there. And then one person just propagate the message. And so those messages come back to us and say, hey, man, we saw Dr. Roger, Dr. Dash on, on your channel. So it was a great, that was a, a a great way to get our messages out. And that medium, including ethic media, like Dash said, they were so super supportive when we went on there. I remember uh, Sim and I for the first uh, Punjabi interview, it was a little bit nerve wracking, but like they were so supportive. The ethic media and Peel were so supportive. And they barely get any funding right now. And that was an alternative way of getting the message out that public health was not using. From there, we started getting the messaging out to our community. And one of the things we noticed in Peel was that the testing rates were really low for areas when COVID was high, they weren't being used. So testing facilities in Peel weren't being used to the point where even Ontario House was considering closing some of the facilities. And so we said, this is wrong. Like we know that our you know, rates are high. People aren't going there for a lot of reasons. And we realized, uh, and I would do my ER shifts these dashing guys would tell you, I do my ER shifts and I'd hop in the car and I'd go to these testing centers out in Peel and I would park myself outside these testing centers and get, you know, do surveys on people and ask them, you know, did you get any info in Punjabi? Did you get information isolation on Punjabi? And none of them were getting any of it. None of them were getting, and a lot of the phone lines weren't working and a lot of the websites were all in English. So they weren't being used. Kind of got together. Uh, Sim's mom did an awesome video in Punjabi. Uh, my mom helped me with, uh, we did a whiteboard video. Anju, as you know, did a whiteboard video with me that went viral within this community. And next, you know, we got our community using these testing facilities, facilities from like 100 to three to 400 per day. That was pretty awesome. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it really resonates with me about community-based outreach around COVID has been so important, right? People say that there's vaccine hesitancy. They say things like people aren't just aren't getting it. And what it is, is that maybe we haven't been saying it in the right way. We haven't been making sure that people understand in the, in, in the language that they need to understand. So I think that a lot of people have taken a, a note from your playbook and started translating things in high-risk neighborhoods to the languages that are the the key ones for certain jurisdictions, for instance. And I think that's making a big difference. Sim? Yeah, so just to go on to uh, Roger's point, so like the one-size-fits-all thing did not work. And that's what we realized really early on. And that's why using these sort of different modalities and these different platforms was so vitally important because we knew that which sort of demographic listened to what. So we knew that the essential workers weren't watching Doug Ford's sort of conferences at 12 o'clock because they were at work. And we also knew that when our parents, they love the forwards, right? Because we were getting these forwards of misinformation. In 
Instagram we used for more people that were sort of our age and a little bit younger than us because we know that Instagram has a big following. And that actually ended up being one of our biggest sort of like platforms that we actually have for the task force. So I think that using sort of all these different modalities, using the ethnic media, knowing that the fact is that we have to sort of change and be nimble with regards to the messaging very, very quickly because things changed every single day. And from what Dash said is that the messaging that we were putting out there was evidence-based messaging and it was sort of the same messaging that sort of public health was trying to convey, but it wasn't sort of reaching the audiences that we wanted. Fair enough. All right. So in terms of what's the next steps, it sounds like there's been quite a, a public uptake. We've been having people join in to the cause and I, I, I myself have been a beneficiary of one of your t-shirts and, and we're starting to see celebrities like Ryan Reynolds, you know, hopping on Twitter and Instagram with uh, with a t-shirt on. What's what's the limit here? Where are we headed next? Like where what's the next next step here, Sim? So I just want to say, so the campaign came about because we knew that vaccine hesitancy was going to be a problem. And we actually want, we started our messaging before the first vaccines actually even touched ground in December. We were taking sort of note of what was going on in the UK and the United States. Um, so that's why we wanted to be proactive instead of reactive, which most of sort of what's gone on in sort of this pandemic. We made this sticker originally, and it was, it's the Got My Dika sticker. And Dika means vaccine in Punjabi, Hindu and uh, Hindi and Urdu. So that was our original sort of idea. We had a bunch of people sort of wear a shirt and it got like, it was the Got My Dika shirt. And it got so many people wanting to get that shirt. And we're like, you know what, we can actually make this something that isn't just about South Asians. This is something that affects everyone. And so that's when we combined forces with other grassroots organizations and came up with sort of the this is our shot campaign because it resonates with each community differently and also in the same way. So that's how this sort of campaign came about. Currently, I believe we're at 30 plus languages that we have for the sleeves. We also went and there is evidence out there with regards to influencers having such great influence over people when it comes to sort of when they see people getting vaccinated that they resonate with, that people are more likely to go sort of go out and get vaccinated. And there's also that sort of FOMO, so fear of missing out. So you want to have something that is sort of hard to get. And so that's how this campaign sort of all came about in the beginning. Oh, that's amazing. Dash? Like Sim was saying, the issues that we had within our community were the same issues that we were seeing across Canada, not just in racialized communities, but white kids in the suburbs were, were hesitant to get their shot. So groups that we had kind of informally been working with before, we decided, listen, we've got we to team up, we've got to combine our resources, our efforts, and, and speak with a national voice. And, and that's really what it's turned into. And the, the foundation of this campaign isn't just like, hey, this is a cool ass t-shirt. Don't you want to be a part of it? The foundation is that, yeah, absolutely. People are going to have questions around vaccination. This is a big deal for most people alive right now. They've never been through something that affected the whole world all at once. That was so in your face, you know, like we're all a part of climate change. We all have a, a role to play in the, in, the, um, in the resource inequities that exist. But people don't think about that every day right? Most people haven't been through a world war or something like where there was a international mobilization effort. But this is it. This this is this is our really it's our thing. It's our moment. This is this is what will, you know, we reflect on our lives decades from now. This pandemic will be such a humongous part of how we understand ourselves. Yeah, of course, we have to get people to that point where they're on board. 
if they have questions, we have to attempt to answer them. And that's why we have vaccine information available in 27 plus languages that, you know, the, the languages that are spoken across our country. That's why the, the range of our influencers crosses every ethnic, every socioeconomic barrier or, or category. You know, we, we, we started off with super well-known white guys, Ryan Reynolds and Michael Buble. But, you know, now we've got black teenagers in Scarborough that nobody's ever heard of before that have completely organically and spontaneously decided, hey, you know what? I want to support Kids Help Phone. I'm going to scrounge together a couple of bucks, get a t-shirt. I'm going to put out my message to my friends because God damn it, I want to see them again. You know, it's it's one thing to get all these big names and famous people. And, and you know, to be fair, as much as they've been supportive and want to be a part of this and, and help us get over this, there's always some self-interest involved. What really moves me now is when people nobody has ever heard of will pick up a Sharpie, write, this is our shot on it, record a video and send it out. That is what does it for me now. As yeah. a social movement, right? When that happens. And mm-hmm. and this, you're right. This is our shot to get it right because it's a once in a lifetime pandemic, hopefully. And and uh, we, we have to start really mobilizing everyone to fight it together. So I hear you. I, I think that anytime you see these big social movements, it's it starts with a hashtag, but it ends up with was live saves. And, and, and that, that's what's the most important thing. I think about other movements like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter. This is our lane. Um, with some of the anti-gun movement in the U.S. And I think all of these are really important movements, but they're not just a hashtag. They don't stay just on Instagram or Twitter. It's about the difference that they make in people's lives, whether that's, you know, a family of five that you can convince or if it's you know, a whole community that goes to the same mosque or same church. I think those are the kind of differences that we can make if we stand up and actually advocate for health. And I think that that's a big part of what we need to be doing as physicians. You know, they, they joke about it and, uh, you know, the canonized roles and, and how you know, it's like this emblem, but at the same time, I think the three of you are living what it means to be a health advocate. And I think that's really a powerful thing. We, ju- we just need to all kind of think about how we can do that part of it for ourselves, right? Whether that's talking to your family members because they're vaccine hesitant, maybe it's addressing and answering a question when someone asks of you on, on uh, your social media. Like, obviously you can't give medical advice, but you can give general advice and you can give an example of yourself getting your shot, for instance, and leading the way. Any final thoughts from the three of you? Maybe we'll go to Raj first. I'm just so inspired and grateful to have, have you know, met these two and, and the, the rest of the, the group that has done so much incredible work. You know, I, I think that they also didn't touch upon the fact that these guys, the South Asian Task Force, lobbied and advocated for a, a testing center in Peel. And now we have that and we're running that. They also advocated pretty hard public health to get a vaccine center. And that's also come to fruition. And so that's all kind of the hard work of, of the South Asian COVID Task Force and, and, and our team. And we run the largest testing center in Peel now, you know, and then the, uh, the vaccine center is vaccinating well over 700 people a day now. So I'm just really privileged to be a part of this group and looking forward to having this pandemic end and be a part of it and be, be a voice for for those that don't have a voice in Peel. And, and I think that's being able to do that is just, it's pretty incredible to be part of this movement. Yeah, maybe Sim, do you want to add something? Yeah, so I think Raj did it perfectly is that once you have a platform, you have to use it in order to amplify all the people who don't have that platform. So we're out there advocating for all the people, all the essential workers, all the people who don't have access to internet or to any sort of ability to make appointments. We are trying to make things more accessible because the barriers are what are sort of limiting so many people from getting vaccinated or going out there and getting tested, which we knew what was going on in the beginning. As a physician, we always think about medicine. 
However, I think that during this pandemic, it actually gave us, it gave us an opportunity to do something that is different from medicine. And it honestly has been so fulfilling. It's been, it's been something that we've been, we work every single day in order to get the message out to as many people as possible. And I got to say, I didn't like, yeah, I was both their resident. I didn't know these guys that well. And we've become a family. Because every single day we talk, we we talk about how we can make things better. We can talk about how we're feeling and we share all of our sort of successes and hearing the stories of the people who are out there getting vaccinated because each individual person is making this pandemic come to an end. Everyone plays a part. And that's what is so very important about this. And I think lastly, just want to say is that knowledge is power. And the thing is that in order to have the information that people need in order to make the choice to get vaccinated is so vitally important instead of just going out there and lecturing people to go do it. And Dash, do you want to say the final word? All all of you on this call know me pretty well now. And you know that I'm not an organizer. I'm not organized in any way. Most of the time, I I barely make it to work to the right site, the right time. That is a challenge for me. What I've really come away with from this is one, really how privileged I am for sure. And probably most of us are. Most of us are able to listen to this podcast where we've we've come to this point in our lives because of opportunities that we've had. I'm not saying it's been easy for all of us. That's not it at all. But when we're at this point, like Sim was saying, we have we have a potential platform. Even even if you're not the kind of person that uh, that is that is at the bleeding edge of the movement, if you find something that needs to be fixed, even if you're scared to do it, you can probably step up and surprise yourself. Maybe you should take that chance. The other thing I want to say is when it comes to this pandemic, we really are all in it together. I don't like the fact that we have to take time away from our other professional responsibilities and our families to participate in what started off essentially as a messaging campaign, because there is a tremendous cultural divide in Canada. You know, we used to call it a land of two solitudes, but there's way more than two solitudes in Canada. And there really are cultural silos that exist on their own, right next to other cultural silos. And, and, and the two of them barely interact. That's a problem. And as much as as much as we, we, we might not interact with other uh, entities, with other cultural phenomena, throughout the country. We're in this together. We are not getting out of this until we all get out of this. And that's kind of what we mean when we say this is our shot. It's our shot. It's not just about me. It's not just about my neighbors. Every person has a role to play here. we got to get that, that drive to 75, that push to herd immunity. And I can't afford as an individual to ignore the concerns that my neighbors in another postal code might have because I don't care about them. We are not getting through this. If that's the attitude we take. It really, this is our shot. We have to care about Every postal code, we have to break down those borders. The postal codes are are just letters and they're, you know, even borders don't mean anything in this pandemic. And that's become very, very clear. So I think that that's a rousing call to arms. I, I love the idea that you're challenging our listeners to just find that one thing that pisses them off or annoys them and try to fix it. If we all are 1% better every day, by the end of the year, we'll be 37 times better, like 37 hundred percent better than we were at the beginning of the year. You can do the math. One times to the power of 365 is is one. One to 1.01, right? Just that 0.01 to 365. That's that's 37 times better. So l- let's do it. Let's make the world a better place. 
And so with that, I will thank you for joining uh, me on the podcast. And thank you for all the service you've given to all the communities that you've served. And thank you so much for being part of our Macmerge community. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Dee. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Residence Corner, the Mac Emerge podcast. I'm Ben, one of the PGY1s, soon to be PGY2s in the FRCP Emerge program. I'm here with one of my co-residents and another soon to be PGY2, Dr. Jaina Balakumaran. Jenna, how are things going? Things are going well, Ben. Soon to be PGY2, very exciting. No more call. No so more exciting. call. Throw away the pager. <laughs> Throw away the pager and leave it till PGY3. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to be speaking with Jana today about getting involved with research as a junior learner. Now, research is a daunting task and ask for any junior trainee whether it be as a medical student or as a junior resident. Jana, you are one of many excellent up-and-coming researchers in our residency program, and I know you just spoke to a group of medical students at CAPE this year about how you got involved with research in medical school. Today, I'm hoping to pick your brain and chat about the pearls and pitfalls of getting involved with research as a junior trainee. First things first, Jenna, how did you get involved with research during medical school? Yeah, so I dabbled in a lot of different areas of research. And throughout uh, medical school, I worked to use research as a way to explore the different areas of Emerge. So I actually got my start in research as an undergrad student in peds neuroendocrinology. So a bit of a, a leap from where I am right now. But what I found really useful about that was, you know, I kept my teeth on systematic reviews and some qualitative research. And that gave me the skill set that gave me the confidence to go towards potential PIs in the eMERGE world and say, you know, I've got these skills, I've got an interest in eMERGE, is there any way that I can transfer them? And I found that that was a great asset. In terms of eMERGE research during undergrad, it can be hard to find. Um, It can be hard to find the right project, let alone any project. But I sort of dabbled in a couple different areas, including SIM, education, and critical care research. And I found that a really useful way to figure out that I really loved Emerge and um, figure out the different areas that I could explore. Yeah, I think it's a, a testament to what makes you a good Emerge resident is the fact that you're interested in many different things and you want to learn many different things. Now, I imagine Emerge is a lot different than uh, the practice of your peds neuroendocrinologist uh, PIs, but uh, it's still very important to have those skills and have those transferable skills as well. Now, once you've found a potential supervisor for your research, how did you figure out what projects were actually right for you? That's a great question. Um, I think as a medical student, especially there, when you're new to research in general, there's a temptation to say yes to every shiny new project that comes your way. But I always encourage folks who are starting off in research to be very critical about the projects that they accept and to think about um, a couple different areas of the project to see if it's the right fit. So first of all, the content of the project. So is the focus of the paper something that you're passionate about or have interest in learning about? I've definitely had experiences of saying yes to projects that seem great, even though I wasn't super passionate about the topic. 
and it can feel like pulling teeth trying to get those projects done when you're not really passionate about them. So definitely to start off with making sure that the content fits. The second thing that I think about when you're talking to a PI or a team about a project is about shared goals. So is productive research something that you're interested in, meaning that um, are you aiming to present at a conference, finish off with a publication, develop a program or changes in practice? Thinking about where your goals are early on and make sure that they align with the rest of your team is pretty important, in my opinion. It can be hard to have these conversations early on, but there's some things that you can do on your own to get a sense of whether your PI is the right PI for you in terms of goals. So that can be as simple as looking up their most recent publications and seeing, have they been consistently productive in their research? Do they put their learners on their projects? And I think those are really easy ways to get a sense of your PI, potential PI's sort of practice and style. Another thing that I'd have a very frank conversation about, which again can be very difficult early on, is expectations. And these are shared expectations. It's a two-way street. But getting a sense of timeline is really, really important. Is this expected to be like a six-month project or is this like a multi-center international RCT that's going to take a couple years? You don't think fits with your timeline. Thinking about time commitment, so how many hours a week do you expect to be able to commit to this project? Level of support, so this will vary based on where you are in your research career and what kind of project you're taking on, but is this a project where you feel like you're comfortable with taking the wheel or do you feel like you need some more support and is this the right uh, PI for you to give you that kind of support? And the last thing that I have a conversation about is the team. So who's involved in this project? So yourself, the PI, is there a research methodologist or is the PI going to act as the research methodologist? Are there other team members and what are their roles? And that'll sort of help you figure out what the project's going to look like. So those are just some things that I would definitely have a conversation with the PI or potential PI early on in the process to get an idea of if your goal is aligned. Yeah, these are some wonderful insights I wish I had heard before trying to get involved with the research as an undergrad and as a medical student. I, I think you're so right. It's important to know what you're getting into with the project, where you're going to be within the project. You know, Will they ever publish a junior trainee as a first author? Mm-hmm. And how much work is there going to actually be? Is this going to be the Wild West where you're just going to be thrust into the project and say, see you in three months? Mm-hmm here's a big set of data, or you're going to have someone who can help you along the way. So I think it's so important to triage the projects and the investigators you'll be working with. For sure. For sure. Now, I know I'm terrible at keeping many things on my plate at the same time. Jana, how did you balance and continue to balance your clinical responsibilities with staying productive in your academic responsibilities, particularly with your research? That is an excellent question, Ben. And I have had ups and downs with this in my research career, as I'm sure everyone has. Um, And I feel like you kind of have to experience it to learn from it. But hopefully we can provide people with some pearls to avoid the mistakes that we've made. (laughs) So it's difficult and it takes a lot of hard work. In my own experience, I tried to stay involved with research throughout medical school. I had these big goals of maintaining all my projects throughout clerkship, and that obviously didn't happen. <laughs> I think it's very natural to slow down in clerkship when your, your time gets split between 
lots of different areas. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier on, it's very tempting to jump onto any opportunity that presents itself, especially when you've been looking for a while and something finally shows up. But really, I really encourage everyone to stay critical about about the products that they take on. Especially with the merge research, I feel like it can be hard to find sometimes, but it's important that you, you consider your options. A big thing that I realized maybe a little later on was to think about the timeline of the project and what your life is going to look like six months down the line when you expect to be preparing a project for publication. Are you going to be on your general surgery rotation where you're on call very often and may not have as much time as you um, do right now? And how will that affect your productivity? Um, um, so I think really taking a, a critical look at what your life is going to look like throughout the timeline of the project, how many hours it's going to take, and being very honest with yourself about how much time you have and how much you're willing to contribute. I was very intentional in PGY1 in terms of trying to wrap up projects that I was involved in um, as a medical student and focusing on residency. And that was sort of my path and everyone's different. But I think being very intentional about signing up for projects, wrapping up projects and making sure that you're staying committed to things that you're passionate about is very important. Yeah, it's hard to keep some of these projects on the back burner. And then you jump back in and you don't really remember where you were. You don't feel like you're the same content expert necessarily. For sure. And you're absolutely right with the timeline, especially for medical school, where you're hoping to have some sort of research productivity within that CARMS timeline. Mm -hmm. And that can be a bit hard given all the external factors. Totally. I think it's uh, brilliant about planning around your rotations and maybe you're going to have internal medicine with general surgery right afterwards and you know you're not going to have the time to clean up that manuscript and you're just going to maybe have time to Know, make some toast in the morning and a, if you're me a, a box of frozen pizza at night if that. So, <laughs> well Jana, thank you so much for your time here any last pearls or pitfalls on getting involved with research as a junior learner i think sort of the takeaways that i wish i had when i started were you know don't spread yourself too thin your project stuffer and you stuffer there's no rules on how many projects you can take on but to but you really need to to reassess regularly how productive you're being and what you're committed to. And on that note, don't be afraid to reassess your commitments. And if you're having second thoughts, you know, be honest with yourself and your team and come up with a solution, whether that means redistributing tasks or ultimately stepping away from a project gracefully. Those are options. You're never 100% tied down to something. And I think it's important to be very honest with your team if you're, if you're having trouble uh, with a project and ask for help. And I think just being very intentional about your goals, being intentional about, about what you want to take away from a project, whether that's learning more about research methodology, whether it's about producing something specific, presenting at a specific conference, changing practice, developing a program, whatever it might be, remembering what your initial goal was at the outset of starting a project and helping that guide you throughout your research career. Amazing. Jenna, thank you so much. For sure. Thanks for having me, Ben. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. 
Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out.